Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. And one of the simpler versions told by Matthew. Two of those four stories include stories of Jesus' birth. I'm going to read to you this morning from Matthew's version. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. No secret to anybody, it's Christmas Sunday. You can tell because the sanctuary's decorated and uh, lots of the people are decorated in their Christmas vest, right? Had a fantastic brunch. Are you grateful for that good, uh, good feed? Yeah, thanks to our kitchen crew and all of you who contributed food. Children performed absolutely beautifully as we expected them to. The, uh, the traditions are that, that bring us um, the, the festivity of this time of year um, sometimes get a little bit tired, and then there's something that seems to breathe life into them again, and we find great comfort in repeating some of these traditions like a children's Christmas musical. One of the things that the church does rather rhythmically like that, each year it comes back to the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. 
And when we do it, in the weeks that, that approach the celebration on Christmas Day or Christmas Sunday, we find ourselves going again and again to the same passages of Scripture. Typically, we go to the prophet Isaiah, his great foretelling of this one who is going to come and make a real difference in this broken, messed up world. It's his telling that is the most poetic and beautiful. And so we find ourselves going back there year after year. We work our way back and forth between Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. And, and as I mentioned earlier, Luke's is the longer story. It includes much of the detail that, that, that we love when it comes time to tell the Christmas story of these, of these great wise men, astrologers, some practitioners of some ancient religion who somehow looked at the sky at night and could tell that the world was about to change. We love that part of the story. We love the story of some dimmer bulbs, maybe. Guys whose whose star had risen so far as being able to watch animals, and that's uh, all that they could do. They They were camping out with sheep. Something in the heavens told them that all of life was about to change as well. Herod heard that life was about to change. And and all of these groups, for various motives, mixed motives, started seeking Redeemer. The Bible is uh, not just one book, but a collection of 66 works of literature from many different genres. Together they tell the story of a God who loves people so much that he just can't stand to be separated from us. So he comes into this world seeking relationship with us. The Bible tells many stories of people who were seeking God, seeking a Redeemer, and always, in the Scriptures anyway, it seems to involve a journey. Over the last few weeks, instead of taking that usual path of Isaiah and and the Gospels, we've been considering the story of two women who were in search of a Redeemer, who made a journey from the east, in fact, to Bethlehem, where Jesus would later be born. It's a story of two desperate women, two vulnerable women, two women who didn't stand much of a chance of life going right for them from here forward. But we, should, uh, we shouldn't think of them as characters because they were real people, real people like us, people who had faults, people who had strengths, people who had hopes. Like many of us, these two women's uh, hopes hadn't exactly panned out. Their financial plans didn't work out at all like they had hoped. So they found themselves one day saying, all we've got left is a search for someone who can help. It's from the Bible's Old Testament book titled Ruth. And and I think that Ruth is a Christmas story because it too is a story of people who are searching for a redeemer. Today I'd like to read you that story. So sit back and if you'd like, you can watch the screen and maybe see some images about how that story unfolds. But most of Scripture is better listened to than read. And maybe some of you would like to just close your eyes and you can paint a far better picture anyway. But maybe just somewhere in the story, when you run across these seekers, maybe you'll run into yourself. The story goes like this. 
Once upon a time, it was back in the days when mighty men, judges, led Israel. There was a famine in the land. Things got so bad that a man from Bethlehem left home to live in the dreaded country of Moab. Moab of all places. He and his wife and their two sons. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's Naomi. His sons were Malan and Kilian. And both sides of the family were from that small town of Bethlehem. And that's why it was such a surprise to their whole clan when Elimelech and his family uprooted, went to Moab, and settled there. Soon thereafter, Elimelech died, and Naomi was left to raise their two sons alone. In time, the boys grew up and married Moabite girls, Orpah and Ruth. They lived there in Moab for the next ten years But then the two brothers, who had been somewhat sickly their whole lives, also died. And now Naomi was left alone, without either her young men or her husband. One day, she got herself together, she and her two daughters-in-law, to leave the country of Moab and set out for home, her real home, Bethlehem. She had heard that God had been pleased to visit his people there and to give them food. And so she started out from the place she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law with her, on the road back to the land of Israel. After a short while on the road, Naomi gave voice to something she'd been wrestling with. She told her two daughters-in-law, go back. Go home. Live with your mothers. And may God treat you as graciously as you treated my boys your late husbands and me. May God give each of you a new home and a new husband. And then she kissed them, and they cried openly. They said, no, we're going with you to your people. But Naomi was firm. Go back, my dear daughters. Why would you come with me? Do you suppose I still have sons in my womb who can become your future husbands? Go back, dear daughters, on your way, please. I'm too old to get a husband. Even if I said there's still hope, and this very night got a man and had sons, can you imagine being satisfied to wait until they were grown? Would you wait that long to get married again? No. This is a bitter pill for me to swallow. More bitter for me than for you. God has dealt me a hard blow. Again, they cried openly. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and said goodbye. But Ruth hugged her and held on. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law is going back home to live with her own people and her own gods. Go with her. But Ruth said, don't force me to leave you. Don't make me go home. Where you go is where I want to go. Where you live is where I want to live. Your people are now my people. And your God, he's going to be my God. One day, you'll die. And when I die, I want to be buried where you are. So help me, God. Not even death itself is going to come between us, Naomi. When Naomi saw that Ruth had her heart set on going with her, she gave in. And so the two of them traveled on together to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was soon buzzing. Is this really our Naomi after all this time? But she said, oh, it's me, all right. 
but don't call me Naomi. That's not who I am. That name means pleasant, and my life is anything but that. Call me bitter if you have to call me something, because that's exactly what life has become for me. The strong one has dealt me a bitter blow. I left here full of life. God's left me with nothing but the clothes on my back as I return. So why would you call me Naomi? Not even God thinks of me that way. He ruined me. And so Naomi was back, and Ruth the foreigner with her, back from the country of Moab. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, it so happened that Naomi had a relative by marriage, a man who was prominent and rich, connected with the Limelech's family. His name was Boaz. One day, Ruth, a Moabite foreigner who stood out like a sore thumb in that small town, said to Naomi, I need to go to work. We need to eat. And I hear some of the farmer folk are kind enough to let people in our circumstances take what's left after their harvesters have done their jobs. Maybe there will be enough left for us to survive a while longer. Naomi said, well, my dear daughter, go ahead. And so she set out. She went and started gleaning in a field, following in the wake of the harvesters. As it turned out, she ended up in a field owned by Boaz, her father-in-law, Elimelech's relative. A little later, Boaz came out from Bethlehem, greeting his harvesters, God be with you! And they replied, and God bless you. These people really liked their boss, apparently. Boaz asked his young servant, who was foreman over the farmhands, who's that young woman? Where'd she come from? The foreman said, oh, that's the Moabite girl, the one who came with Naomi from the country of Moab. She asked permission, and she's been at it steady ever since, from morning until now, without so much as a break. She's a worker, that one. I'll give her that. So Boaz spoke to Ruth, listen, my daughter, from now on, don't go to any other field to glean. Just stay right here in this one and stay close to my young women. Watch where they're harvesting and follow them. You won't have anything to worry about. I've given orders to my male servants not to harass you. Whenever you get thirsty, just feel free to go and drink from the water buckets that the guys have filled earlier in the morning. When Ruth had seen him coming, she had feared that she would be told to leave. That fear, however, soon melted into gratitude. She dropped to her knees, then bowed her face to the ground in a show of respect. How does this happen, that you should pick me out and treat me so kindly? We both know I'm a foreigner and that you don't have to do this. Boaz answered her, well, I've heard all about you. I've heard about the way you treated your mother-in-law after the death of her husband and how you left your kin and the land of your birth and have come to live among a bunch of total strangers. God reward you well for what you've done, Ruth, and with a generous bonus besides, because you've come to God seeking protection under his wings. She said, oh, sir, such grace, such kindness. I don't deserve it. You've touched my heart. You've treated me like one of your own, <coughs> and I don't even belong here. At the lunch break, Boaz found Ruth again and said to her, Come over here. We have more than enough, so why don't you share our lunch? 
So she joined the harvesters, and Boaz passed the roasted grain to her when she ate her fill. She even had some left over. And when she got up to go back to work, Boaz ordered his servants, let her glean where there's still plenty of grain on the ground. Make it easy for her. Better yet, pull some of the good stuff out and and leave it for her to pick up. Give her special treatment. You know what I mean. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening, and when she threshed out what she had gathered, she ended up with nearly a full sack of barley. She gathered up her gleanings, went back to town, and showed her mother-in-law the results of her day's work. She also gave her the leftovers from her lunch. Naomi was impressed. Where did you glean today? Whose field was it? God bless whoever it was who took such good care of you. Ruth told her mother-in-law, the man with whom I work today, his name's Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, really? Why, God bless that man. Maybe God hasn't walked out on us after all. Maybe he does still love us in bad times as well as in good. That man, Ruth, is one of our circle of covenant redeemers, a very close relative of ours. Ruth the Moabites had had never heard of such a thing, but said, well, listen to this. He also told me, stick with my workers until my harvesting is finished. I can go back every day for a while. Naomi said to Ruth, that's wonderful. Do that. You'll be safe in the company of his young women. No danger now of being taken advantage of in some stranger's field. So Ruth did it. She stuck close to Boaz's young women, gleaning in the fields daily until both the barley and the wheat harvests were finished. She had a place to stay, a place to work. One day, her mother-in-law said to Ruth, you're a daughter to me. Forget the in-law part. You've done so much for me, and now I want to try to do something for you. It's time I arranged a good home for you so you can have a happy life. And isn't Boaz our close relative, the, the one with whose young women you've been working? Maybe it's time to make our move. Tonight is the night of Boaz's barley harvest party at the threshing floor, and I have an idea. Take a bath, put on some perfume, get all dressed up, and go to the threshing floor, but play it cool. Don't let him know you're there until everyone is, you know, partied for a while, and he's had plenty to eat and drink. The men will all camp out there to guard the crop, and when you see Boaz slipping off to sleep, watch where he lies down, and then make your way over there. Pull the blanket back, lie at his feet. Trust me, he will know what it means. Then just wait and see what he says. Ruth said, I've never heard of such a thing, but if you say so, I'll do it, Naomi. I'm trusting you. And she went down to the threshing floor and put her mother-in-law's plan into action. Boaz had a good time eating and drinking his fill. He felt great. Then he went off to get some, (coughs) pardon me, some sleep, lying down at the end of the pile of barley. Ruth quietly followed, and when she was sure he had fallen asleep, she uncovered his feet and lay down there to send the signal that she was available and interested in marriage. In the middle of the night, the man realized that his feet were cold. Suddenly, he knew something wasn't quite right, and he sat bolt upright. There was a woman sleeping at his feet, and he said, Whoa, who's there? She said, I'm I'm Ruth, at your service. 
take me under your protecting wing? You're my close relative now. In the circle of my covenant redeemers, I think Naomi called it. I just thought I'd let you know that you do have the right to marry me. He said, God bless you, my dear daughter. What a splendid expression of love. Look at you. You could have had your pick of any of the young men around, and you picked me? Sweet thing, don't worry about a thing. I'll do all you could want or ask. Everybody in town knows what a courageous woman you are. You're a prize, and we all know it. You're right. I am a close relative of yours, but there is one who's even closer than I am. Don't worry about it right now. Stay the rest of the night. In the morning, I'll ask if he wants to exercise his customary rights and responsibilities as the closest covenant redeemer. He'll have his chance. But if he isn't interested, surely as God lives, I'll do it. Now, go back to sleep. So, Ruth slept at his feet until dawn, but she got up while it was still dark so she wouldn't be recognized as she walked back to Naomi's house. Boaz said to himself, no one must know that Ruth came to the threshing floor. And he said aloud, bring the shawl you're wearing and spread it out. And she spread it out and he poured it full of barley and he placed it on her shoulders. Then she slipped into town before sunup. When she came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, well... Ruth told her everything that the man had done for her, adding, and he gave me all this barley besides, six quarts. He told me, you can't go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Naomi said, sit back and relax, my dear daughter. You're going to have to be patient, but you'll find out how things turn out. And if I'm right, that man is not going to fool around. Mark my words, he'll get everything taken care of today, wrapped up. Later in the morning, Boaz went straight to the public square and took his place there. Before long, the closer relative, the one mentioned earlier by Boaz, strolled by. Step aside, old friend, said Boaz. Take a seat. And the man sat down. Boaz then gathered ten of the town elders together and said, Sit down here with us. We've got some business to take care of. And they sat down. Boaz then said to his relative, the piece of property that belonged to our relative Elimelech is being sold by his widow Naomi, who has just returned from Moab. I, I thought you ought to know about it. Buy the farm if you want it. You can make it official in the presence of those sitting here. You have first redeemer rights. If you don't want it, tell me so I'll know where I stand. But you're first in line to do this. I'm next after you. What farmer couldn't use a little more land? So the man said, yeah, I'll buy it. Then Boaz added, you realize, don't you, that um, if you buy the field, well, it, it comes with something else. It comes with a woman. You also get Ruth the Moabite, the widow of our dead relative, along with the Redeemer responsibility to have children with her, to carry on the family inheritance and the family name. You get all that, right? As often happens in situations like these, there was an awkward pause. Too awkward. Too long for it to mean anything good was happening in that man's mind. He wanted the land, but the lady, uh, talk about complicating things at home. 
he couldn't find a way to make it work out in his head. So he said, I, I, ah, I can't do it. I'll jeopardize my own family's inheritance. You, uh, you go ahead and, and buy it. You, you can have my rights. I, I can't do it. In olden times in Israel, this is how they handled official business regarding matters of property and inheritance. A man would take off his shoe and give it to the other person. This was the same as an official seal or personal signature in Israel. So when Boaz's redeemer relative said, go ahead and buy it, he sort of signed the deal by pulling off his shoe and handing it directly to Boaz. Boaz then addressed the elders and all the people in the town square that day. You are witnesses. I have bought from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech and Kilian and Malan, including responsibility for Ruth the foreigner, the widow of Malan. I'll take her as my wife and keep the name of the deceased alive along with his inheritance. The memory and reputation of these men is not going to disappear out of this family or from this hometown. You are all witnesses to this today. And all the people in the town square that day, backing up the elders, said, Yes, we are witnesses. May God make this woman who is coming into your household like Rachel and like Leah, the two women who built the family of Israel. And may God make you a pillar in Bethlehem, Boaz. With the children God gives you from this young woman, may your family rival the strongest family in our line. So Boaz married Ruth. She became his wife. Boaz slept with her, and by God's gracious gift, she conceived and had a son. The town women said to Naomi, We told you God is good, Naomi. He didn't leave you without family to carry on your life. May this baby grow up to be famous in Israel. He'll make you young again. He'll take care of you in your old age. And this daughter-in-law who has brought him into the world and loves you so much... Yeah, she's a foreigner. And as people thought in that day, yeah, she's a woman. But she's worth more to you than seven sons. Naomi took the baby, held him in her arms, cuddling him, cooing over him, waiting on him, hand and foot. The neighbor women started calling him Naomi's baby boy. But his name, actually, was Obed, which means worship. So that little baby worshiper who reminded his whole town to do the same, he grew up. And one day he became the father of a boy named Jesse. And one day Jesse grew up, and he became the father of a boy named David. And one day David grew up, and he became Israel's greatest king. And that's not the end of the story either. It was a family of destiny, or, or couldn't you tell? A prophet even wrote about them. He said, A green shoot will one day sprout from Jesse's stump. From his roots, a budding branch will grow and bloom. The life-giving spirit of God will hover over him, the spirit that brings wisdom and understanding, the spirit that gives direction and builds strength, the spirit that instills knowledge and fear of God. Fear of God will be all his joy and delight. He won't judge by appearances, won't decide on the basis of hearsay. He'll judge the needy by what is right. He'll render decisions on earth's poor with justice. 
His words will bring everyone to awed attention. A mere breath from his lips will topple the wicked. Each morning, he'll pull on sturdy work clothes and boots and build righteousness and faithfulness in the land. Another prophet wrote, a child has been born for us, the gift of a son for us. He'll take over the running of the world. His names will be Amazing Counselor, Strong God, Eternal Father, Prince of Wholeness. His ruling authority will grow, and there will be no limits to the wholeness he brings. He'll rule from the historic David throne over that promised kingdom. He'll put that kingdom on a firm footing and keep it going with fair dealing and right living, beginning now, lasting always. The zeal of God of the angel armies will accomplish all this. Ruth. It's one of many stories of people who made epic journeys in search of a redeemer. What's a redeemer? A redeemer is a person who has the horsepower and the resources and the compassion to get involved in your life's biggest trouble and guide you through it. Usually at this time of year, we talk about the shepherd's journey, and we talk about the wise men's journeys to look for Jesus. But those men certainly were not the first people who searched for a redeemer. Certainly won't be the last either. I'd bet in a crowd this size, there are some people today who are looking for somebody who has the horsepower and the resources and the compassion to get involved in their life's biggest problem and walk them through it. The good news is that the redeemers are not all past tense. They're not all historical figures. If that journey, your journey for a redeemer, is what brought you here today, I want you to know that I'm pretty sure that God is already at work in your journey. I know, it's Christmas Sunday. There's something in us that goes, I ought to go to church today. Did you ever stop to think that maybe it was something other than human convention? Do you think maybe it might have been something beyond mere sentimentality that stirred your heart this morning and said, I know what they're going to talk about today, and I want to hear it again? I think God's already at work in your journey. If, if your journey, your search for a Redeemer brought you here today, and I know this much, the Redeemer wants you to discover faith. And here's why. It's because he knows that whenever faith begins to grow in our hearts, we start reaching his direction. He knows that faith ends up leading us into a relationship with the God who made us a relationship that will seriously change your life. Whatever else you may think Christians to be, we're just a bunch of people who together have realized that we need a Redeemer and who believe that we have found one in Jesus of Nazareth. So, my friends, whether you are someone who has journeyed with Jesus for a lot of years, or you're somebody who's trying to find someone with the horsepower and the resources and the compassion to get involved in your life's biggest struggle, 
I recommend to you Jesus. If you'd like to begin a relationship with him today, I can help you begin that. It begins very simply by simply believing that he's the one. That Jesus is the one that God uniquely equipped and sent into this world. Not to fix everything, but to walk with us in the middle of our life's hardest things. To bring his horsepower, his resources, and his compassion to bear on those things. I'm not selling you an ancient story today, nor am I selling you some uh, promise that's too good to be true about the future. What I'm offering you today comes from my personal experience. Jesus is the Redeemer. He has everything that it takes to get in there with me in the puddle of my own tears and work through the hard things with me. He brings me comfort and he brings me peace. And he wants to do the same for you. If you want it, why don't you have a conversation with him about it today? Christians call conversation with God prayer. Don't turn it into something that it's not. Don't turn it into a speech to impress God with how spiritual you are. God's pretty spiritual. He's not impressed with human spirituality. One thing that does seem to impress God is when people are genuine. When people just get see-through and real with him. Why don't we do that? Everybody here today, why don't we get genuine and see-through with him? Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. Again, nothing... Nothing magical about that. It's not something you have to do in order to pray correctly. It's not something that lets God know, okay, now I'm ready for a conversation. (laughs) That's not how this goes. Bowing our heads is a sign of reverence to us. It's us reminding us. This is the God of heaven and earth that we're talking to. Closing our eyes, that's simply a matter of trying to not be distracted because our minds chase all kinds of things. Bow your heads and close your eyes if it works for you. And if it doesn't, do whatever it takes for you to uh, connect with God. But that's what we're doing here this morning, Lord. We're trying to connect with you. And if I remember the Christmas story and or the Ruth story well, Those stories are built upon an understanding that long before I ever started seeking you, (coughs) you have been seeking me. Lord, there are some people in this place today who want a relationship with you. They want some help. They want some hope. They want some reason to believe that come tomorrow, life could get a little bit better. Something something has eroded their soul's ability to hope that if they're going to continue to do life on their own, and that's why we turn to you. It's why all people who turn to you ever turn to you. It's because we've lost hope that we can make it through this life, and we gain hope in doing it with you. Lord, for those who are reaching out to you today, I pray that you'd reach out in a way that makes it clear to their hearts 
that they are not grasping at straws or snatching at the air, that you're real, that you too desperately want to have relationship with us. Lord, would you listen for just a moment while in private prayers between our hearts and yours, we just kind of whisper to you why we need you and how much we need you. Lord, hear our prayers. Lord, everyone who's reaching your direction needs to hear back from you. So while we wait for just another moment of silence, you don't have to shake this place or rattle its foundations. Would you just be close enough to people, to the, the seekers and the searchers, that they can tell that you're real, that you've heard their prayers, that you love them? Maybe you'll settle in close while we sing one more song of praise and thanksgiving to you. But as we reach your way, Lord, we, we, we come confessing that we're imperfect. We've failed. We've flat out sinned. We've done things that are wrong and know it. Many times in life, we've just tried to ignore you and we've wanted to be in control of our own lives. We just own up to all that today. We also own up to this. Today, we're ready to let go of all that stuff that never worked for us anyway. To come to you just as we are. Would you be a redeemer for these neighbors and friends and family of mine who are gathered here today, Lord, and for me 